want to uh, take just a minute this morning and let you know where we're going. We're starting a new sermon series today. Uh, back earlier in the fall when the pastors were planning for this season after Epiphany between Christmas and Lent, we were talking about different things that, that we were picking up or listening to and were concerned about. And Colin Absher Bear, who's our pastor of young adult ministry and the pastor at First Table, said that one of the things he was hearing a lot is this concern, particularly among the younger adults, of the fact that we live in a culture that keeps pressing for more and not leaving space for some other things. And that's, that's the way we live, right? We live in a culture that says, well, you can do one more thing today, just adjust your schedule that you can get one more thing done today. You can, get, you can buy one more thing, you just have to move some things around and you'll find a space for it, just, just one more thing. The dilemma with that is we fail to remember that every time we add something more, we're getting less of something else. And frequently, the thing that we're getting less of is less of God and less space in our life for God. So we're going to take these six weeks to talk about, of Epiphany to talk about some life and spiritual practices that will help us create more room in our lives for Christ by simplifying our lives. And so we're going to, we're, the sermon series is entitled simply Simplify, and today we want to talk about Simplify Your Purpose. Let us pray. Oh God, we come on this day to remember that Jesus came to the Jordan to be baptized, that Dove descended and voice spoke, and he was named your beloved, and that we've come to these waters and we've received that same grace and gift in our life through him, and we pray that you would help us stay focused on our true purpose, which is to proclaim him as Lord and Savior who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit as one God in glory everlasting. Amen. Many of you know that about ten weeks ago I had the privilege, um, thanks to the invitation of, a, of another pastor, I had the privilege of baptizing my second grandson, Robert Bennett Guy O'Quinn. In the family we call him the other notorious RBG. It's a big name for a little boy, Robert Bennett Guy O'Quinn. It makes sense if you know what it was that my daughter was trying to do. Our first grandson, the one you all know as JP, is actually Jason Perry O'Quinn III, which means that he was named for his father and his other grandfather, and he shares a name with one of his three great-grandfathers. So my daughter, wanting to make sure everybody was included, named the second child Robert, which is my name and my dad's, Bennett, which is Mary Ellen's father's name, and Guy, which is the other great-grandfather's name. So between the two boys, they are all named for all the men three generations back in their family. Robert, Bennett, Guy, O'Quinn. The problem with a name like that is it comes, as most names do, with some expectation. I asked Elizabeth and Jason what it was they hoped that Bennett would receive from the people for whom he was named. And they told me, they said, well, we hope he has the kindness and the determination and the wisdom of my father, Robert, and the work ethic and the passion for justice of Mary Ellen's father, Hugh Bennett, and the generosity and love and patience of Jason's other grandfather, Guy. That's a lot to put on a little man of eight months. 
But most of our names have expectation. I don't know the story behind the choice of Asher's name, but there's got to be some story behind it, and there's some expectation with it. You, we carry names of expectation. So imagine, if you will, for just a moment, going back to Matthew's Gospel, how this must have felt to Jesus. Expectation with your name. We said the Sunday before Christmas when we read that story of the, of the uh, a dream and the angel appearing to us in a dream that he was going to be named Jesus, which means God saves. There's no pressure there. That's your name. And then he comes to this story of this baptism. He comes, we read, he, he comes down to this muddy creek. Have you ever been to the Holy Land? The Jordan River is not that much. It's really, it's really not that much of a river. In our mind, it's like the Mississippi. It's really the Noose is a nicer river than the Jordan. He comes down to this muddy river to his half-crazed cousin in the middle of this crowd, and he's baptized, and his voice says, the beloved. Oh, so now he's just, you know, God saves the Son of God. There's no expectation on him at all in this story. The church, the church has struggled with this story, by the way, from almost the very beginning. I think for us in our time, the thing that fascinates us about this story is the, is the supernatural part of the story. You know, the, the dove descending from heaven, the voice speaking, the special effects part of the story. It fascinates us, but we also have to admit there are better special effects in the rise of Skywalker than there are in this story from the Gospel of Matthew. And yet that's what fascinates us because we are rational, left-brain, stem people, postmodern, supernatural, voices from heaven, doves descending. That's just not our, we don't see the world that way. John Dominic Crossan points out that what embarrassed the early church about this story was exactly the opposite. It wasn't the supernatural that the early church was embarrassed by, it was the very natural. The voice from heaven, the dove descending, that fit their worldview. What they didn't understand is, why would the Christ, why would the Messiah of God go down and submit himself to a fanatic like John the Baptist? Why, why would the Christ, without sin, go be baptized by someone who said he was baptizing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin? This is a story that troubled the early church for the opposite reasons of it troubling us. They were troubled by the fact that it was just very normal and natural, almost like here. And why? This is the Son of God. I'm a, I'm a date myself. I have a bad habit of doing this. I, I love the way this is portrayed. You remember the old miniseries Jesus of Nazareth from, from like four decades ago? The way it's portrayed there is beautifully done. It, John's in the river baptizing. There's a crowd standing all up this whole hillside of people standing around. And Jesus just comes walking into the scene. There's no big fanfare. There's no big production. He just comes walking in. He makes his way through the crowd. Nobody parks to make room for him. He comes down to the water, and then the scene looks like the one we recognize. John says, no, I should be, not you. you we should do this different. And Jesus says, no, you go ahead. And they do. And when they do, when, when John reaches into the water and gets his hands full of water and pours it over Jesus' head, there's this moment of bright sunlight, and you hear the spluttering of wings and the suggestion of a voice. And then Jesus just simply turns and walks away. 
He just begins walking back up through the crowd. No one's noticed. No one, no one parks to make room for him. John just starts baptizing the next person. But he watches Jesus leave, and the camera watches Jesus leave. But nobody else seems to notice what's happened. And that's the thing that troubled the early church. Which is why Matthew tells the story as he does. Of the three Gospels that tell us the story of Jesus' baptism, only Matthew says this. And the voice from heaven said, This is the beloved. Mark and Luke say, And a voice from heaven said, You are the beloved. In other words, for Mark and Luke, only Jesus hears the voice. But Matthew, Matthew who's wanted us to understand that his name means God saves from the very beginning. And Matthew who makes a point that he's at the Jordan River, the place where the children of Israel had crossed into the promised land back in the book of Joshua, led by someone named Joshua, whose name in Hebrew means, wait, God saves. It's the same name, Joshua and Jesus. One's Hebrew, one's Aramaic. That through this new Joshua, through this Jesus, we will all enter into the land of promise. And to be sure that you understand that, Matthew has the voice say, this is the beloved. So that not only does Jesus hear it, not only does John hear it, you hear it, and I hear it, and everyone in the crowd around heard it. This is the beloved. Whom I am well pleased. This is his identity. This is the Son of God. This is the one through whom God will save. And this is his purpose. Now, this is an important enough story that church tells it annually. And I think the reason the church tells it annually is because it helps us understand our identity and our purpose. We struggle with identity. We struggle with our purpose in life. Most of us continue to till the end of our days. I can't tell you how many times I have been with older people near the end of their life who will say to me, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know why I'm still here. I can't do anything anymore. We, we struggle with that continually. This is not something, regrettably, that ends with the end of adolescence. As much as we hope that it would, if I could tell every teenager in the church one thing, it's don't, don't think adulthood's all that, all that. You're not going to have it all figured out. You keep figuring it out as you go along. We, we continually struggle with this. And we live in a culture, don't we, that wants us to be identified by so many different things. And so many different institutions and so many different people try to tell us this is who you are. And very few of them appeal to your authentic self or your real self. And we end up, all of us, with multiple selves. We're all multi-personalities at this point. There's your home self. There's your work self. There's your internet self. There's your traffic self. There's your church self. And very rarely are we able to bring those together in a holistic way and find who we are in our true self. Karen Armstrong, in a, in a lovely um, new book called The Lost Art of Scripture, in which she writes uh, about the value and importance of Scripture, all the Scriptures of all the world's religions. In her introduction, she writes this, We want to be slimmer, healthier, younger, and more attractive than we are. We feel that a better self lurks beneath our lamentably imperfect one. We want to be kinder, braver, more brilliant, and charismatic. 
And because that's true, we make New Year's resolutions, right? I can guess most of your New Year's resolutions. I can also guess that here on the 12th day of January, you've probably broken at least three-fourths of them already. And the reason for that is they don't appeal to who... Karen Armstrong goes on to say in this book that the world's religions and its scripture tell us that who our true self is is the self that seeks the holy. The self that seeks to be in touch with the divine. And that when we find that self, we find our true self. So we begin, we struggle with this, right? And the irony is, those, we don't even know those selves are competing within us until they get face-to-face -face with each other. Until, for example, work self and home self need the same hour of time. And then you have to figure out who wins and who loses. Which self are you going to be? We don't, we don't realize that until traffic self and church self compete with each other. You know how this goes, right? You're driving down Cary Parkway, and you're going behind somebody who's interminably slow, and you're, you're greeting them. And you pull up to the traffic light next to them, and you realize that's a member of your Sunday school class. And now traffic self and church self have come together, and you have to decide who is who. And you, really what you do is you sort of slink down, don't you? And you pray for the light to change. If it's the light by the one on the corner of Maynard and High House, it doesn't change. It stays red forever. And so we, we look to the story of Jesus' baptism. And by the way, if we struggle with identity, if we struggle with who we are and how hard it is to be, how authentically we are, can you imagine how difficult and painful it is for people who struggle with identity, whatever that identity might be, and the world labels their identity as something bad or sinful or evil or wrong, and we place that burden on top of the interior burden they're carrying? Because truly... All any of us really want is to be called beloved. And this is where the baptism of Jesus comes to play. Jesus comes to the waters to fulfill all righteousness, which means he comes to the waters to be one with us so that we may come to the waters and be one with him. And when we come to these waters of baptism, as Asher did this morning, then as Paul says, our life is hidden with Christ in God. And we put on Christ. And we discover who we truly are. Beloved. Children of God. It can't be that simple, can it? I mean, for most of us, we think that our purpose is found in some big thing. And when we don't achieve the big thing, we feel like failures. So look again at Matthew's story of Jesus' baptism. The infuriating, maddening thing about that story is this. Jesus has done absolutely nothing except walk down to the river. If you've read the Gospel of Matthew, you know this. It begins with the genealogy. So and so begat, so and so begat, so and so begat, so and so. It moves immediately from that to this story of Joseph having this dream of this angel telling him about the birth of this child. It moves from there to the story of the Magi. Jesus 
Jesus still a child? And Joseph and Mary having to take this child who cannot protect himself to Egypt for his own safety, they bring him back. The third chapter opens with John the Baptist preaching. You don't see grown adult Jesus until he walks to that river. He has done nothing. And yet he's called beloved. He's done nothing. And yet he's called the Son of God. And like Bennett, he's bearing a name that's laden with expectation. But before he lives into that expectation, he simply is who he is. And God says that's beloved. It's that simple for us. By grace, we come to these waters, and God calls us beloved. In Jesus, God calls us beloved, and He says, it, "The rest of that, does, this is your true self." And could it be that all our purpose really is is to honor our baptism, to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves, not in the big ways, but just every day, where we are every day. Could it be that it's this simple? We just every day, at home, at work, in traffic, here, at a restaurant, at a movie theater, we every day just bring all of ourselves together into this holistic self that God says is beloved. And we live as the beloved children of God in the world, and we live into the name given us at our baptism which is laden with expectation, but it's also overflowing with grace. Christian. Could it be that our purpose is simply to be Christian? To be as Christ-like as we can be everywhere we are, whenever we are. It's as simple as that. To do that, to just be Christian, and to every day remember to say, thanks be to God.